As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out, why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. So on this week's New Statesman podcast, we have a slight sound issue. We are recording this on our phones in the podcast bunker. But so news has been a, well, has it been an eventful week in the Brexit process? Yeah, that's a good question, actually, because it's become sort of fashionable to, it used to be fashionable to say this this week will change Britain's future. And then it was fashionable to say, <coughs> as ever, nothing's changed. Whereas I think this week is a little bit of both. So it's the first time that Parliament has expressed a majority for a Brexit bill. Yeah, other than Article 5th. Yeah, 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 other than than actually triggering the process. Yeah. So I think that suggests that something's changed. That's new. That hasn't happened before. But in terms of knowing sort of when that's going to happen and what shape it's going to take and whether there's going to have to be an election to actually sort of break the the gridlock, we still don't know yet. So in that sense, nothing's changed. Yeah, no, I I think I completely agree, right, in this week, for the benefit of any listeners lucky enough to be living under stone, the House of Parliament passed at second reading Boris Johnson's Brexit deal, which basically is the bit where you get to go, I'm broadly into the thrust of this. Yeah. It declined his programme motion, which is the timetable to approve it. Boris Johnson is seeking an extension. We don't know if the extension request will be honoured, although I think the underlying assumption is that in practice, 
as long as one EU nation wants an extension, there will be an extension. Although, you know, maybe like that is going to be the final hilarious capstone <laughs> on uh, Macron's pro-European reforms in his first term, blocking the accession of accession talks of North Macedonia uh, and kicking out one country early or arguably at all. And, oh, and ending the spits and candidate system. Uh, but <laughs> I think, yeah, the, the underlying assumption among most EU diplomats and most people at Westminster is that there will be a long or at least three month extension in which the open question is, can Brexit be resolved by this parliament? Well, this stage of Brexit be resolved by this parliament? Because it kind of feels to me that the, the thing was slightly surprising, given that the second reading was a free hit, right? And then you could basically go, I want Brexit to happen and then stop it in its tracks. Yeah. I was assuming more than 19 Labour MPs would vote for it at second reading. Yeah, I mean, that was a big opportunity because you could basically go back to your constituents and say, look, I didn't block Brexit, but you could also be basically voting against what Boris Johnson wants to do and voting with what your party wants to do a seconds later. So it was a good opportunity for those kind of MPs to express that. And it was a really s- slim number of them who did. Yeah. So you expect it's going to be an absolute nightmare for Boris Johnson to get this parliament to pass that bill without amending it to smithereens. Yeah, because essentially, right, so I think the other, the other thing which is really fascinating to me is, so I think we all knew that in practice that if the option of you can have all the regulatory divergence you want in Scotland, England and Wales, and all you have to do is create a customs and regulatory zone for Northern Ireland, then there would be a large majority in the Tory party for it. Mm-hmm. I was kind of expecting that at least one of them would be kind of like, actually, no, I, I care more about the union or, you know, particularly seeing as pe- there are still people who are saying, well, my first preference is no deal, but I'll choose this deal over no deal. Almost everyone thought, well, one of these people who's privately saying this will vote against the deal. Yeah. So it's interesting because essentially it turned, we all kind of thought that, OK, we know that there are about 24, so five abstentions as well as the 19 positive votes at second, uh, second referendum in the Labour Party. But we think there are probably about 10 people who haven't told any journalists who are like somewhere floating in the dark matter of the PLP. Mm-hmm. And it turns out actually there, there is no dark matter in the PLP. <laughs> that, that is the number that will, put, that will vote for Brexit. We kind of assumed, OK, right, so there are loads of people who will tell us they care about, about the union between Great Britain and, and Northern Ireland, and at least one of them will put their money where their mouth is in the chamber, and it turned out that none of them them would. But this is just the exit terms, right? This is just the agreement to leave. The difficulty is, is then, there are no Brexits. Yeah, kind of people keep talking about like, oh, you know, people are voting for a harder Brexit or a softer Brexit. Well, no, they're voting for a Brexit with a wider potential array of, of, you know, there are more possible hard end states to this Brexit than there are. But you could, in theory, still end up in the EEA and in a customs union after this Brexit if you wanted to, right? Yeah, this is solely about the terms of exit. Now, for, I was actually for understandable reasons, for reasons that I think are at least tactically arguable, the government is kind of trying to pass both at the same time by codifying elements of the non-binding political declaration into the withdrawal agreement bill. However, one option they do have is to pass a clean, here are the terms of exit bill without any like jiggery-pokery about the future relationship and to try and pass a slimmed-down, we-are-leaving bill. Mm-hmm. But, of course, one reason why some people in Downing Street don't want to do that is they quite like the idea of having to fight an election on a, these wreckers of blocking Brexit. And even though I'm not convinced that the end point... Yeah, because I guess, yeah, so you'd like listen to the adult radio, you listen <laughs> to today, the Today programme. How did you feel it played for the government on today? I always feel that it plays better for the government on today than when I watch it 
on sort of news snippets or listen to news snippets on on less sort of news heavy radio stations and i think you were tweeting something similar actually yeah no i think that that's right i mean there's far more credence given to the idea that you know parliament is blocking it that lots of them are doing it for the reason that they don't want brexit altogether rather than the fact that they want to try and shape the 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 future partnership they often you know well i mean this, this shouldn't turn into sort of bbc bashing but i think ministers are often allowed on on challenge to make those kind of statements and it's almost like they're giving election campaign slogans rather than actually talking about what happening in parliament that's how i always feel when i listen to the today program and we were talking about this in the live podcast i think but i feel like that phantom election thing is very much the overriding message of lots of the commentary and of lots of the interviews on sort of that but that's that's just one heavily political show yeah because what i thought was interesting is because you know so i start the day by listening to radio three and then on a heavy news day i will switch over to classic fm because Classic FM is owned by Global, who are the kind of other big player in British radio. And as with Radio 3's music channels, where it's cascaded so broadly, the message is the same on all all of the music channels on the BBC. Yeah, the message on Global, on Classic FM, is the message on Heart, is the message on, yeah, etc, etc. And the thing I found really striking, having listened first to the Radio 3 one naturally, and then thinking... It's still too early in the day for me to deal with music with with voices in it. I'll let's see what's going on on Classic FM. Is the framing of it is so bad mm. because it's basically MPs have voted for Brexit. However, they have not agreed to do it on the timetable demanded by Boris Johnson. So Boris Johnson has pulled the Brexit bill, and Downing Street is saying there might be an election further delaying Brexit. Which is what's happened, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah this, this, this is the thing. It's things funny where, to hear the news being what's actually... Yeah. yeah, well, it's one of those things where you're just kind of like, I, I don't think there's anything particularly unfair about that framing. Mm. But, OK, she had bigger problems throughout the course of the campaign. But right from the off, one of the things that hurt Theresa May was the, the perception that she was a straight man, getting on with the job, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. was damaged by the very fact of her going, here's an election that I don't need to call. Yeah. Now, I think there are a couple of reasons why that might not work out the same way for Boris Johnson, even though I think they are kind of failing to stick the landing in terms of the argument and this is an election and they need to call, as opposed to an election in which they're going, if one comma in this bill moves, we will pull it, is one, no one, even people who like Boris Johnson, and because Jeremy Corbyn is so unpopular in the polls now, I think it's easy for people to forget that although Boris Johnson has a huge lead, he is significantly more unpopular than most politicians at the absolute pit of yeah. their unpopularity. But even the people who like him don't think, I like Boris Johnson because he's a straight bat who doesn't do <laughs> political things. Yeah. So, so I don't think it's as harmful. But I also think, I guess my kind of, the thing I know I don't know is I think they've done quite a good job in Downing Street of managing the media and seeding the idea that this election is needed and they haven't, like, deliberately kind of sidled into it yeah which means that even if the actual circumstances of the election are very obviously manufactured i kind of think it's yeah that that linton crosby phrase about you can't fat a pig on market day the flip side of it is if you have fattened it beforehand and on market day you forget to feed it well your pig is less appealing than it would be but you've still probably done most of the hard work anyway yeah they've put in the hard yards of the campaigning already and i agree with what you say about managing the media in fact that's something i mean this won't have trickled down to your ordinary voter but it is something that people are finding quite unsettling there's been a lot of pieces the best one of which was by jill rutter who was at 
the Institute for Government, um, and she used to manage press at the Treasury, and now she's at UK in a changing Europe, I think. Yeah. And she wrote a piece about these sort of anonymous briefings from Downing Street sources, and Nick Cohen and Peter O'Bourne have written columns about this process too, whereby journalists quote people anonymously so they can't really be held to account. And the problem, I mean, that's always been the, well, that's been the case in modern politics for a while, but the problem with it in with stories like these is that they're basically contradicting what the government is saying on the record, or Boris Johnson is saying in the House of Commons. And that's sort of doing quite a lot to well, discombobulate certain people in the media at the moment. They don't understand sort of what is the actual truth. And it can lead to a lot of reporting that's basically sounds a bit more like propaganda than what the actual story is, because you're quoting these anonymous people and basing your stories on what really is just pre-election spin. I thought Jill's piece, you're exactly right, was really good. And I thought her remedy for it, which was broadcasters shouldn't quote anonymous sources they should just name the spokesperson and yeah like and only take named quotes on air i think is a good approach because i'm afraid i'm simply not sold on the idea that like so so there are loads and loads of reasons why we use anonymous sources Mm. and i'm just not sold that any of those apply to a quote on a news bulletin on the six or the ten or an appearance by the BBC's Pollard on the Today programme, or an appearance by ITV's political editor on, yeah, on, on Good Morning Britain, or similar. I totally I'm, agree I with that. I simply just don't, like, the reason why, you know, I use anonymous quotes is, A, to protect those sources from reprisal, mm-hmm. and B, in order to be able to break stories about the inner life of those political parties. And the reason why other people who do investigative journalism do it is, of course, to protect... However, like, literally none of those are functions that we expect from our public service broadcaster. Yeah. Um, and therefore, I'm just kind of unconvinced... Yeah, I just thought that Jill's argument for what we should do instead was, I thought, pretty strong. I think also, yeah, it avoids this, like... Well, this slight problem, then, ultimately, then if you have taken at face value what a Downing Street source has said you at every stage have been wrong about this process. Yeah, that's the thing. You're basically... I mean, if you're doing it in good faith, you're basically being led up the garden path by someone who's lying to you. But if, as I assume lots of these journalists are, if you're very clever and you know exactly what's going on, then why are you parroting some of these stories that actually have no basis in fact? So, you know, certain things that can actually can actually frame this Brexit process for voters. For example, the idea that there was some foreign collusion behind the Ben Act, for example, that was a com- completely baseless story as far as we can tell. And that was sort of framed by Downing Street sources to certain journalists. So I do think it's having a real life impact. I don't think it's the, you know, I don't think it will be the sort of undoing of whoever goes up against Boris Johnson in the election, but I think it's I think it's more it's more of a problem at this time than it has been before. Yeah, I guess this is where my my inner Osbornite comes comes out. My sort of concern about it is yeah, I think actually the things which are electorally significant about the ways that the broadcasters are sort of effectively spun are sort of equal opportunities, right? So someone who worked for the Labour Party during the 2015 election said that they thought that the most important broadcasting bias is that there is a particular bias towards whoever someone making a proposition. Mm-hmm. So if I, like, political party A, like, claims that, you know, Anusha Kelly and is, like, tall and blonde, it's just like, you know, <laughs> Anusha Kelly and is tall and blonde, the Stephen Bush party has stated, a spokesman from Anusha Kelly and has denied <laughs> the claim. 
And you kind of hear it and you're like, yeah, but you would deny the claim, wouldn't you? You're the opposition. And yeah, there's something exactly, about yeah. the very sh- mode of broadcast that is kind of has a propositional bias. And that, I think, did advantage Labour in 2017. I think it did advantage the Conservatives in 2015 because you had the kind of propositional bias of the SNP are coming to eat your house, say the Conservatives. Labour have said that they will not let the SNP eat your house. Or they would say that. <laughs> And in 2017, you had Labour will do a nice thing. The Tories say the nice thing is unaffordable. Yeah, yeah. And shouldn't, people shouldn't eat, should eat their gruel. And you're like, well, yeah, you would say that. I think this one is just more problematic because I basically think one of the structural problems with Brexit is could we honestly say that people have been left as informed about the impact of Brexit as they are on, say, the budget, right? Where people broadly watch the budget coverage and they might go, austerity's great, austerity's bad. But I think they at least could accurately, when you were like, are you a winner or a loser yeah. from this budget? And I feel like there's been a failure to analyse the policy in that way. And also, right, ultimately, like, I, I just think that, and this is, yeah, I think it's a problem on the Labour side as well, that a source quote, by definition, should not overlap with a spokesman quote. Yeah. Because the source quote, if it's not something that the official spokesman does not want to want to be heard... It's not a useful source quote. Exactly. Like, like, it doesn't that, tell you anything about yeah. what's going on behind closed doors. Yeah. Like, yeah. If, if a source quote is a message, then, then Downing Street wants out or the Labour Party wants out. It is a spokesperson. Like that to me is yeah, literally exactly. how it works. I mean, I recently did a story about something that a council had done and... I had a source in the council who was telling me what was going on and I also had a spokesperson for the council who was giving their rebuttal to my story. Yeah. Those are two completely different functions. Both of them are, I think, important to the story to make sure it's well-rounded, but they have completely different functions and I don't understand why, because that's that's the case in every form of journalism apart from this particular strand. Mm-hmm. And, you know, having certain advisors that use it or exploit it can really make it quite a chaotic media machine we saw that with the extension letter right where mm. it was just like downing street sources says boris johnson has sent three letters one unsigned yeah, it's yeah. Just like covering this in this the only thing this is doing is leading with the government's pre-buttle as it yeah, were of yeah. what's happened before the event pre-buttle is a good word. like it's just yeah. one of these things where it's just like like i'm not saying i i actually think there, there are equal and opposite problems if the bbc in particular yeah with its kind of hegemonic you know grasp on our media landscape right is the primary news source for 60 percent of the country mm-hmm. even before you factor in you know its app its website yeah push notifications yeah, yeah like there is a huge problem if you instead have a bbc push notification going defeat for boris johnson as he sends letter yeah however the fact that the first push notification i got from the bbc news app was boris johnson's three-letter ruse it's just like this is not necessary. There's there's a private media market for this. Mm. Like, and this is where my kind of Osborne belief that they are too imperial, you know, kind of comes out in full sort of hue. Mm. I just don't think there is a case to be made for an organisation that we are compelled to fund for it to provide things that the market will not provide to assist in the kind of news, news, news ever-speeding, creation of new bits of slogans and jargon so that people cannot follow the Brexit process. The like, what does this mean for the strategy and what does this mean for the election? Like, if there's an argument for something we are compelled to fund in this way to survive in the 21st century, and it does not do these things. Mm -hmm. And if it does these things, then its blog should stop taking away eyeballs from my blog. It's, I'm afraid, (laughs) essentially, like, my, you know, like, 
my, you know, maybe that's incredibly mercenary, but I just kind of think like, if you want to behave like a market actor, then be subject to market mechanisms, rather than this situation in which people cannot really vote with their, their feet, is you know, my incredibly right-wing view. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. The big question that, yeah, we kind of undenied this week about when to do the podcast because we knew that we, we might think is, you know... Because we'd lost the equipment. Because we lost the equipment. <laughs> yeah, we had, there were loads of reasons why we didn't do... Don't didn't try do and the... pretend it's about the... Uh... <laughs> well, I mean, so... A couple of hours ago, we were thinking about not doing it today, and then we decided to do it today. Then we had to search for the equipment, but you know, we one of the reasons that contributed. Yeah, it did contribute. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was a, a contribute. Was, so that was my three-letter spin. Yeah, yeah. Um, there were many factors. Is you know, is there going to be an election? And I guess, yeah, we just don't really... Well, we sort of disagreed about this, didn't we, when when we did our live podcast a few w- weeks ago, because someone was asking, oh, is it definitely going to be in December or November? And Patrick and I were sort of discussing about the the likelihood that it could possibly be next year, actually. And I still kind of think that that is a high likelihood. I know it's not really what people have been suggesting this morning, but... I think Labour have now broken that taboo of the opposition party has to support an election. It has to back the opportunity to oust the sitting government. That was always the received wisdom. And now they've now they've broken that. Do you see what I mean? They've broken that barrier. And so it's easier now for them to do that again. I don't know what justification that they'd give, because if they're going to secure an extension, that was the original reasoning. But as we mentioned earlier, they are doing so badly in the polls. And I do think that Downing Street's media management has been successful so far. An election, I don't think, is a very attractive prospect to the Labour Party right now. And I can see the opportunity that they have to keep delaying it. But equally, I kind of think those two things are linked, right? So, so yeah, they've broken the taboo and they've done it in Westminster. But the decision not to go for an election, you know, with a you know, notwithstanding motion saying the election will be on day X mm. after the Ben Act passed, I think has been an unmitigated disaster for, well, the principal author of it was actually the broader Remain movement. Yeah. And the Labour leadership, which had doubts about it, felt that they had to do it because otherwise they'd be uh, aggravating their, their already not inconsiderable electoral problems with, with organised Remain, as it were. But ultimately, it created the space for 
as we've repeatedly said you could do, for Boris Johnson to get a deal by moving the Irish border in, into, the, into the sea, which, you know, has passed in principle twice, right? Yeah. MPs voted, yeah, would have voted in principle for it with Letwin, and they arguably did because it, you know, because of the way the government opted to, to do it, and they voted in principle for it at second reading. Only the fact that the government went for this sort of kind of we want our fight or we're taking our ball away thing with the programme motion means that we are not now talking about a situation in which we're not saying, is Brexit going to happen? Yeah, yeah, happen. We'd be saying, well, the only question is we're out and then the fight about the fight the future relationship. So it's been a disaster for Remainers. It's been a disaster for Labour because it meant that they've ceded their position in which the political debate was no deal, yes, no, a question which unifies the Labour Party and is comfortable for them to answer, to Brexit, yes, no, a question which divides the Labour Party and is uncomfortable to answer. And it creates a media environment in which I think it is completely fair enough for the broadcasters to cover the government as if they are more important than the opposition. I mean, they are the government. However... We have had this situation since September in which, I'm sorry, Boris Johnson's views about the size of the state are barely more newsworthy than Joe Swinson's feelings about the future of liberalism. Have they received anything like equal coverage? No, of course not, because that's not how the government is covered Mm. outside of election time. And I just think that, yeah, an an unmitigated disaster for the opposition that it has allowed itself in a position where it is fighting an election campaign where election time rules do not apply. So I kind of think that one reason why it might happen earlier than January is I think people are... Well, I think there's definitely a a realisation among some organised Remainers that they had a near-death experience this week and then they should quite probably find a way to not repeat that. Because if you extend without an election, you're extending to have a referendum. Now, maybe that's not what you're officially saying, but that de facto is the decision you are putting in front of MPs who don't want a referendum. And that increases the chances that this deal gets ratified by this parliament. If you extend in order yeah. to have an election, but you don't have the election yet, you enter this period in which the government you know, can use all of the powers of incumbency. You have none of the countervailing pressions of election time broadcasting rules, which are, you know, well, the Labour leadership thinks are incredibly important to them. The Liberal Democrats think are incredibly important to them. The short term evidence from 2017 is they're both right. The long term evidence is that that is less clear for the Labour Party, but it is more clear for the Liberal Democrats. Yeah, so I kind of think that the, the sort of flip side of that, though, is, of course, the other sort of act of folly is it moved to the point in which you could fight an election in a time where, yeah, October is an unusual time for election, but it's not actively difficult to this kind of dehabilitating election in the run-up to Christmas. It's dark, it's cold, particularly acute in Scotland, which is going to be a key electoral battleground in the next yeah. contest. And so I kind of wonder if maybe what will happen is is the government and the opposition will find some kind of excuse, like some way of being like, We'll agree a new programme motion and this programme motion will conveniently allow the government to go, oh, Parliament's blocked us, but we're going to try and pass it. Oh, dear, the fact that we can't get our preferred end state through means that we've collapsed in late December, so we have an election yeah. in February after. And that feels to me that might be what ends up happening is yeah. the kind of like effectively a managed long-term yeah. dissolution of this parliament. I, I, well, that's why I think, still, I think that's probably most likely to happen. And I'm not saying that Labour's decision wasn't disastrous, and I can see why, you know, it has been bad for them and the sort of capital R Remainers as well. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily... And this probably makes me sound like I don't have that much trust in the Labour Party to make good decisions. But I think that's all the more reason why they think they could probably leave Boris Johnson hanging on into a more 
until a more convenient time for them to have an election because they've already made that that decision. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I mean the thing is that you know they're over the hump. You know, it's not going to get any better for them. And also, you know, if there was going to be an election, there's that that's because an extension has happened. So they'll still be going into the election with the same argument as they would have been in October. The election is still probably going to favour the Lib Dems because their argument is so clear. They want to re- revoke Article Fifty and. Boris Johnson's message presumably will be quite clear as well. Oh, you know, this parliament won't let me pass my Brexit deal. Vote for me again and, and we'll be able to get it, get Brexit done, you know, as they keep saying. So I can kind of see from Labour's perspective, if the Lib Dems and the Conservatives want an election, it's an election probably this current Labour Party doesn't want. Yeah, and I also think your point about if someone makes a bad decision, <laughs> betting that they will continue to make more bad decisions is, is, is never a foolish way of of betting so I was at uh, an event for you know organized pro-Europeans and a kind of briefing about you know where they go next this is before the vote came back and people in its leadership are still talking about the idea that you could have a referendum in this parliament and it's just like it's just one of those things where it's like guys like I would say quit while you're ahead but the quit while you're ahead (laughs) moment has passed quit while you are like behind but not vanishing out of contention rather I mean this parliament will never have a majority for a second referendum and I do not understand why people have allowed themselves to believe than it would right the revealed preference of the Tory party is that their unity comes well also, I don't know why I'm saying, like, shock and awe as a political party has decided its cohesion is a is an important fa- factor to its ability to, you know, change the country in the way that it wishes. Now, yeah. Tory party is not going to do it. They control the executive, so they will defund and therefore prevent, even if you could conjure up a majority for it on the four of thousand, which you couldn't. I mean, 19 Labour MPs just voted to do this Brexit. Like, yeah, it's, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's one of those things where it's just like, the only route is to try and roll the dice with an election. Now, yes, the polls for Labour are very bad. It's far from clear that there will be enough tactical voting to map to, to to limit the Tories and prevent them getting a majority. Yeah. The Lib Dems may, you know, you know, may, may fall short. Etc., etc. However, those the crucial thing about all of those bad things is I, I prefaced them with the word may, whereas. Eventually, this Parliament will vote to leave the EU. Yeah, like it's just lunacy. It's just lunacy. But you're right. Then yeah, you know, once someone has like you know the first lunatic decision is the hardest, right? Not yeah. least because yeah, I was talking about this with uh, someone else from uh, another publication, and they were saying, well, the difficulty is, it's how do you do your analysis when you're like, well, this is why I said this was a bad idea in September, <laughs> yeah. and um, my advice to you is to invent a time machine, and the <laughs> yeah. answer is you can't. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think yeah. So I think you've kind of convinced me that. Maybe that does mean that we will somehow end up in a ludicrous situation in which, having had this near-death experience, we once again, like, move to a situation going, like, maybe we can have... We a- like the thrill yeah. of the near-death experience. Yeah. Let's do that <laughs> Let's again. Let's do that again. Um, I also do think, going back to what we were saying about December being an odd time for elections, it is off-putting enough to enough people on all sides that there might just be, like you said, the sort of, oh, let's come up with a way where we don't have to do it at this time of year. For many reasons, December is just a very odd time to have an election, but there's so many reasons why. Why it's, you know, worrying about Christmas, for example. Like some people just want to be off for Christmas and have a rest, but other people worry most about money before Christmas. That's a big chunk of your voters there. Yeah, I think this thing is just like, I mean, it's one of the slightly surreal things about basically, I mean, all of politics, but but particularly, like, is essentially because you kind of keep coming back to, well, if you're a major political party, it was in your interest to pass the withdrawal agreement in March. 
And every sort of analysis kind of comes back from this point. We're like, well, you haven't done that. So it's quite difficult for me to see what you... And Ditto, it's obviously difficult for any political party to fight an election in December. It's difficult if you're the Labour Party, which depends on its mass membership and on turning out fairly unlikely voters. Yeah, It's difficult if you're the Conservatives because you are the governing party. It's traditionally a time where, as you say, people start to worry about money. Not something people, yeah, not something which necessarily lends it towards voting for the no. incumbent government. It's a time when, um, you know, what's happened with the pound and what that's done to the cost of exports. Again, these these things all become more acute. And although, yeah, I kind of think one of the weird sort of double delusions that people draw comfort from is a lot of Remainers go, well, the economy will get worse, people will become more anti-Brexit. Yeah. Well, there's no certainty of that. However, I then think people in the government kind of go like, oh, well, People haven't gone off Brexit, therefore they haven't gone gone off us. Well, if you look at all of those Leave voters, yeah, that third of Leave voters who voted for Labour, that non, non-trivial chunk of Leave voters who voted for the Liberal Democrats, yeah. what do they have in common? They were in groups who were particularly acutely uh, opposed to the negative effects of the pounds value falling. So even though those people are still like Brexit, I love it. They were like, do you know what I dislike? The incumbent government and how it's managing my economy. Yeah, yeah. And then, although we have, you know, this kind of terrifyingly, unseasonably warm weather, it's possible that we may have unseasonably cold weather by the time we get to December. And then, of course, if the, if the NHS struggles in cold weather, NHS increases in salience, trust in the Tories' handling of the NHS falls down. There are just so many, yeah, there are so many reasons to, like, find a way that they can have this route in 2020. Yeah. I'm just not certain that that way will be found. Yeah.